When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. Now, when Quentin Nolan, that's our next guest, was 22 years of age, All he wanted was a way to get down to the snow to snowboard, so he started driving coaches down to the snow from Sydney. And he'd have a few guests. After seeing a gap in the market in the ski tourism industry, he came up with his own business, a business called Liquid Snow. That tailors today customers' ski and snowboard holidays and experiences for both groups and individuals to resorts all around Japan, Canada, New Zealand and Australia, but largely Japan. Now, you're going to find in this interview how he came up with the concept of Japan through a chance exchange student meeting when he's a kid that his mum organised. It's pretty mad. So fast forward from 15 years of age to 2008 when Quentin took his first group of 45 people over to the Japanese village of Hakuba. He fell in love with Japan, he fell in love with Hakuba in particular and decided to focus his business on the ski fields right there. 13 years later, Liquid Snow is now on track to turn over $40 million in revenue. He takes around 10,000 tourists a year to Japan. He now owns his own portfolio of hotels worth more than $50 million. He's only 35 years of age. He's smashed it out of the park and he's doing what he loves. I want to ask Quentin how his experience as a child helped shape his entrepreneurial mindset, his sense of adventure, his curiosity about an exotic place called Japan. Why is Japan the natural choice for his growth in his company? how patience and perseverance were key to his success, and the sort of influence that a parent can have on a kid. Where did his single mum raising her three children have an influence on how Quentin took risks, went on an adventure, and created this fantastic business, doing what he loves? So let's get into it. Quentin Nolan, welcome to The Mentor. Thank you, Mark. Nice to be here. How old are you, mate? Mate, I'm 35. 35 years of age, so you're a young fella, but you've been in it for a long time. I have. I actually started my business when I was 22, so pretty fresh out of uni uh, and got straight into it. Well, I I guess um, you organised tour groups, either for individuals or groups of people, to Japan. Correct. Would that be right, right? Yep, that'd be right. Taking them into all those things and all those riches and indulgences that Japan offers. Yeah, absolutely. For example, what does Japan offer? I just know it's a great place. I've been there a couple of times. My very, my second wife lived there. She's not Japanese, but she was working there, and I met her there in um, Tokyo. Um, but I don't really know what Japan offers. What does it offer? 
for sure. So our business is pretty specialised in ski and, and snowboard holidays. Um, so on that front, I guess it offers the best snow in the world and that's without a doubt. Uh, you know, one of the resorts where we operate on average gets about 15 metres of snow and you compare that to Australia, Australia's probably one and a half metres of snow in a season. Right. That's on the snow side and then culturally in food, it's just this beautiful culture with some of the best people in the world, amazing food and just a super long history. So you can really, by going over there on a ski trip, you can really tie in this amazing culture, awesome food, some of the best like um, infrastructure as far as like bullet trains and whatnot go and technology and then also the best snow. So it's it's sort of a win-win. Okay, well, so we'll come back to that in the second half of the podcast then, but I just wanted to intro it because um, I wanted to know what it is that you think that is so special about Japan because your life over the last 13 years, maybe even before that, has sort of been centralised around Japan. So you obviously have a love for the joint yourself. I want to take you right back. Yeah. Right, 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 right back. So when you are a young kid, did you ever heard of Japan? I had heard of Japan, um, but I hadn't been to Japan. What did you think about it? Like, I mean, like it had when always, you were, say, 15, what were you thinking to yourself? Uh, it was always somewhere I wanted to go. Why? So just because, I guess, the cultural differences and and something so different to Australia. Who introduced you to cultural differences? Like, um, mate, when I was 15, I was, where, where you grew up? Where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up in the Boy Mountains. In the mountains. So when I was yeah. a kid growing up in Sydney at 15, I knew about the Canary Bulldogs, they were called the Berries in those days, and uh, um, I knew about the kids in my class, and uh, I, I'm going back a generation before yeah. you, of course, um, we didn't have them as much television or as much, we had no digital environment, but fuck, we never heard of Japan, and I remember my auntie who worked for Qantas, my mum's sister who worked for Qantas, brought back a postcard, or sent us a postcard from Hong Kong, and I saw this photograph of all these fancy lights and colour, et cetera. And I, I, I must admit that did spark my interest in Hong Kong, but I had no idea about Chinese people, no Chinese people in my school, definitely no Japanese. So how the fuck did you get your head around when you were a young fellow about Japan at 15? I mean, unless it's a generational thing, can you explain it to me? I mean, when uh, when I was a teenager, so we did have a Japanese exchange student come and stay at our house. Oh, wow. And so that was definitely Whose idea was that? That was my mum's idea. So she kind of brought someone in to kind of show us the different culture, I guess. Well, okay, okay. Was, that's what I'm trying to get to because, like, my parents weren't that adventurous, I guess, in those days. I mean, my whole family was an exchange student. My dad come from Greece. <laughs> so, like, I mean, we had Greeks everywhere. But uh, so is your mum Australian? My mum's Australian, And yes. your dad was Australian? Yes. And you, you lost your dad too, didn't you? When yeah, you I lost up? my dad when I was two. Two years of age, yep. okay. So you probably don't have a great deal of memory about your dad. No, I don't. But your mum basically tried to play both roles. Yep. Would that be fair? Yeah, 100%. And uh, probably try to make your life interesting. Yeah, she did. Yeah. And uh, so when you're a young fella, um, your mum did something, well, I'm just thinking out loud here, your mum did something that was quite extraordinary to me. You probably didn't realise at the time, but introducing a Japanese exchange student into a single um, parent household, your brothers and sisters? Yeah, I've got one brother and one sister. Well, okay, two more of you. Um, that's a big deal. Yeah, it is. I mean, I guess she always kind of, tried to introduce new experiences and show us different things and uh, and just open our mind up to, to different ways to live. Fuck, that's the word I'm looking for. Experiences. Experiences. That's what you sell. Yeah, yeah. it is. That's what you sell. A hundred percent. Today. hundred percent it is. Okay, but right, going right back to when you're 15, yeah. experiential 
environments was something your mum created. You probably didn't even know what the hell was going on, but like she's a created experiential environment by bringing in a Japanese. Was a male or female Japanese person? Uh, it was a female. Okay, so yep. a, a young. Was she your, around your age sort of thing? Yeah, she was, I think, one or two years older than okay, me. Okay, so she's like a young Japanese person coming into your household. Could she speak English? No, not really. So that's what the point of her exchange was. <laughs> Pretty exotic. Um, like if you probably think – for her it would have been exotic too. Yeah. Um, she was coming in. She'd pro- she's all of a sudden eating um, bangers and mash, whatever you guys are cooking <laughs> yeah, exactly. at home. Is that what you cook? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Wheat picks <laughs> yeah. in the morning, yeah. Vegemite, uh, maybe a cup of tea. Uh, lunchtime is a couple of sandwiches. Um yeah. Dinners, you know, sausages and mashed potato and a couple of veg or whatever. Definitely had different experiences and like seeing like seeing the things that she brought over and how she tried to kind of integrate into our family and and uh, and take on these new things. Like, you know, over there for breakfast they eat fish and rice cakes and and here we're serving a like wheat bix and a banana. You know what okay. I mean? With milk. Yeah, exactly. And so, but like, tell me, which was the overwhelming experience? Like, did did her experience overwhelm your household or did your household experience overwhelm her? Like where was the equilibrium? Was there an equilibrium or was like unbalanced? I mean, did- uh, To be fair, I think our household probably overwhelmed her a bit more. She's the one coming into a completely foreign environment. You know, we were the ones that were still living our normal life. We just had another person there that came from a different culture. And what did your mum say to you? What's your mum's name? My mum's name's Marion. So what did Marion say? Okay. Uh, we're getting this exchange student. You're going, well, what the fuck? That what's an exchange student? Well, tell me, tell me, <laughs> tell me what happened. Do you remember? I do remember, and it was something that we were all for. So, like, she was like, "Oh, would you be interested in get, us getting uh, exchange student from Japan to come and stay with us for a few months?" And uh, we were my, like, me and my brother and sister were like, "Yeah, hundred percent. We're keen." We want to like get someone new. It was so exciting. Yeah, it was very exciting because that, that type of thing to me anyway, sets people's thought patterns apart from others um, and does, in my mind anyway, opens up adventure and opportunity comes with adventure in your mind. Like in other words, a young person's mind is open up to adventure and it's up to them to take on the adventure but nonetheless um, it opens their mind to adventure. It creates a, a totally different outlook towards life so your thought processes are different. They're more... Uh, creative to some extent allows you and allows you to also to have the confidence to have a crack which you know a little bit about it so yeah, did, sure. is, is that your start of interest in japan do you think i think that was my start of interest in japan and, and then, what happened and then i guess on the business side more of my um kind of love of snowboarding and the snow created an opportunity to tie those two together so where did you get a love of snowboarding from who introduced you to snowboarding well on a school ski trip so also when I was around kind of 15, went on my first trip. And then the following year, my mum took me and my brother over to New Zealand and we did that again. And then after I'd kind of finished university, it was something that I wanted to follow a bit more. So 20 years ago, your mum went to, what, to go, to go Queenstown? Where'd you yeah, go? Queenstown, yeah. Queenstown, okay. Like today it's popular, but 20 years ago it wasn't popular. 20 years ago, your mum said, let's go to Queenstown. Yeah. You know, so your mum sounds like she's a bit of a superstar to me. Good on you, Mary. Um, yeah, well, I'm serious. Like she's raised you on her own. She raised you on her own, or did she remarry? Or what? No, on her own. Okay, yep. so she raised you on her own. Obviously, worked hard to yeah, very hard to keep the dollars coming in the door to somehow manage to get you over to Queenstown. Twenty years ago, that's a big deal. Um, pretty much opened the door up for you. So, like the old story, she gave you a strong footing, but wings 
at the same time. That's pretty cool. And so you you combine these two things, you know, your love of an exotic place. Because to be honest, 20 years ago, Japan was exotic. I think it still is exotic. still is exotic. Yeah. It really is because it's held on to its culture. Yeah. Relatively speaking, in my, from what I can see, is relatively culture strict. Oh, very much so. I think more than most countries in the world. I think it was only like 50 or 60 years ago that they kind of opened up to foreigners. So there's still, the way things are done in Japan is very Japanese. It's not been kind of multiculturalized like the rest of the world to an extent. Yeah, it's not blended. Yeah. It's just not blended. It's probably becoming more blended, but it's just not blended. Maybe the younger generation blends. But I mean, physically as a place too, on my recollection is, is pretty cool. It's pretty fucking unusual. Like, uh, yeah. they've got some mad shit going on there. Yeah. Like, uh, I was in a district called Akura. Um, and like, I just couldn't believe a, just the numbers of people. I mean, it's just like intense yeah. for a small yeah. place. Um, the way you travel from airports to, to cities and the way you get around town and the, and the way people dress. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and the way people walk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The shops. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Uh, so you, you got this little itch. I love snowboarding. I love the snow. Yeah. I really love the Japanese culture. Yep, 100%. And all of a sudden you just, you, what, what you do at uni? I did a business degree. A business degree? Marketing and international business. Okay, so you sort of understood, well, you learnt about marketing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, promoting and, yeah. you know, b- building ideas and stuff like that. I mean, that's... I mean, it's, I, a, it's, a, it's a building block. It's not particularly sure. important, but uh, sure. it's a building block. When did you decide, I'm going to have a fucking crack at this Japanese joint? Uh, so, Mark, I was a couple of years out of uni and um, and I'd had another job and, I, and I'd had a crack at another business. And then... What was that? Uh, so, the other business, at the time I was working for Ikea in Sydney when they were yep. opening up their first big store in Homebush. And that business was a very different, it was a... Um, I guess it was a property advertising business. So they kind of came up with the concept of putting a screen board in big shopping centres and selling space on that board to all the local real estate agents. So I bought this franchise, like it cost 30 or 40 grand. Oh, you was, bought a franchise? Bought a franchise, it was like 30 or 40 grand. How old were you? I was 21 or 20, 20 or 21. Um, and then I had a bit of money um, saved up, kind of put everything into this went full on into it and, uh, mate, I was around knocking on every real estate agent in Parramatta, going door to door, working, like working my ass off, like nonstop. And I couldn't get one sale onto this thing. I'd put everything I had into it. And then it got down to the day before I had to sign the lease with Westfields. And, um, and at that point I was like, well, I could probably make through one month or two months of rent without without uh, losing all my money, but after that, like I'm going to be fucked. And <laughs> I love it. and uh, and and at 20 years old, like Westfields is a big company. It's not something that I kind of saw it from the perspective. It's not something that I want to like cause a bad relationship with that could affect me down the track because I was always always had a bit of a business inkling and always always going to go in that direction. So I pulled out of it pretty much a day before I was signing the lease. And uh, and then following that, I was I guess I was a bit more like oh well, I'll just go back and go and do something I love, and that's where the kind of snow side came into it. Did you it. sit down and think about that? Did you say well, 
I'm going to go back and do something I love, and I love snowboarding. I love the snow. I love Japan. Did you put the two together? I mean, what was the moment? I mean, I guess I did think about it. It wasn't, it wasn't like I had a brainstorming session or anything. It was, it was just like I'd always wanted to run my own business. I'd always had that inkling, and um, and then when this didn't work out, I've kind of, I've got a bit of a resilient kind of personality, and and, and I moved on pretty quickly. I'm pretty pretty good to. Give a give a hundred percent if it doesn't work on like not to not to go back and go you know go oh shit like my this didn't work out I've lost all my money I better go and get a safe career yeah I yeah, felt yeah. like I was young and I could do what I'd, and that's something my mum had also shown me that we could kind of do whatever we wanted and she'd shown that through the way she dealt with her life and you know and and the way she brought up me did and my she brother talk and to you sister. about that did she did she talk to you about that or do you think you just saw that uh, I think probably both like. She, I definitely saw it without a doubt. Were you consciously aware of it or just subconsciously saw it so it becomes part of your DNA? Yeah, probably more so just became part of my DNA. So I guess, yeah, after after that franchise failed, uh, that, that it was only around for like a, six weeks or so. <laughs> it was a quick way to lose money when you're 20 years old. Uh, after that, uh, yeah, we, or me and a mate actually started Liquid Snow Tours together. So he had more of a surfing side. That's where Liquid came from, um, and then I was more on the snow side. And uh, and we were like, well, we want to go to the snow, like, and Nick wanted to go surfing. So we're like, okay, sweet, we'll start this business. We'll organise some buses from Sydney, pick up like backpackers or uni students, what have you. Go down on a Friday night, stay in Jindabyne, drive it up and down each day. Take everyone out on. Are you going to drive the bus yourself? Yeah, yeah. I, was, yeah, I was driving the bus. And what about premises? Where's everyone to stay? Uh, we'd book a like we'd book out a lodge down in Jindabyne and we'd yep. find kind of the cheapest one we could, and then bring them back on a Sunday night. Go back into Sydney, sort of one a.m. People can go back to school or go back to being a backpacker or whatever they're doing on for the rest of the week. So we started doing that, and that was good fun. We didn't make much money doing it, but it was good fun. And did that for a season, and Japan was just kind of coming on the radar, and and that tied back to like it had been something somewhere I'd wanted to go, and it was getting quite. At this popular. stage, you hadn't been to Japan though, had you? I'd never been to Japan. And no. your only exposure to Japan was your exchange student, so to speak, and other yeah. other than what you maybe read or saw. Exactly, yeah. So I was like, this is a place that I want to go. This is something I want to do, and you know, I guess when you're that young, you don't really. Think too much about fearless. it. Fearless, yeah, hundred percent. So nothing, no downside. So I, I organised a trip over to Japan, um, did all the research on on the different areas, and I came up with Hakuba. Hakuba is about two and a half hours from Tokyo on the main island. It's where they had the Winter Olympics in nineteen ninety eight. So they've got some really good infrastructure there. They've also got like some of the biggest mountains in Japan. So you did your research. I did a lot of research. Yeah. Yep. And I saw a lot of benefit in going there rather than going to Nisiko where a lot of, uh, not a lot of Australians, but that's that's the area that was getting popular with Australians at, the, at, at that time. Um, and there are a couple of other ski companies operating in Nisiko that were a lot bigger than mine at the time. And and I, was, I just thought Hakuba made more sense. I was like, well, it's closer to Tokyo. We can tie in that cultural side, tie in a stopover in Tokyo, take them up to the mountains, bigger mountains, you know, easier access, a bit cheaper, that sort of thing. And so we put on a trip. We ended up ended up booking. Initially, I was going to take about twenty people, 
But I ended up like, and still to this day, like I don't say no to sales. And so I ended up taking 45 um, and I was their tour guide. Everyone was older than me. Um, and, uh, and so everything was organized as far as like the buses and the accommodation and lift tickets and ski hire and all that side of it. But I'd never been to Japan. So it's like, should I better get over there and better like do a crash course in learning about this country and learning about the, the resorts and whatnot. So my intention was to go over there a week before the trip started, but for whatever reason, I only got there like a day before. So I went straight up to the resort, learned as much as I could, rushed back to Tokyo, picked up the group, um, had a kind of charter bus waiting to take them up to the mountains. And then, yeah, like I told everybody at the time, I was like, look, this is my first time in Japan too. We're in the same boat. They got they had a they had a great trip. I've still got customers that went on that trip that are coming back now 14 years later. Um, and that's kind of where it started. You just said a couple of really important things. I mean, it, it does help that you're in a place like Japan where logistically everything works really yeah. well. I mean, they're an extraordinarily well-organized country. Absolutely. Um, so you were, you were safe in that regard. It's not a bad place to take a risk in that regard. Yeah. But what's interesting about you've just told me is is a couple of things. You were you were driven by your urge and your your love of something. So, you know, you love something, it's really easy to do it. And it's really easy to, if you fuck it up to do it again and just to yep. keep doing it properly. Yep. So you had a love of something. That's the first thing. The second thing is you did you did do your research. So you picked a place that was different where everyone else is going based on some research and you actually were able to build something up unique because clearly what you're trying to do is not just give them a ski resort holiday but equally was to give them a cultural experience so that's why being close to Japan, yep. um, Tokyo, I think it's really important. Where you probably fucked it a little bit is the uh, the discipline of making sure you had it properly structured. Um, as, but but again, you're lucky you're you're in Japan, yeah. so shit happens. But because you know, there's stuff you have to do, logistics yeah. you have to get organised, buses, trains, resorts, skis. Well, well, I don't know whatever you have well, to get. There's stuff, a yeah. lot of shit you have to get organised. You flew by the city pants, um, but it worked. And yeah, it uh, and it gave you an opportunity to do it again. You look like the sort of bloke to me is I don't know whether you you're resilient because I wouldn't know whether you are your arm, but just just from what I can see, people can't see this, but this is what I'm feeling from you is you're the sort of bloke who'd roll with most things. So you said, "Oh fuck it, like I'll do it." You you got that sort of easy going Aussie sort yeah. of attitude. Yeah, uh, that fucking works, man. Like it's uh, that's sort of a cool thing because people w- will look at you and say, "Oh well." You know your customers, your clients. Oh shit, something gone wrong. But he's not flustered. Like yeah, if you're yeah, stressed yeah, yeah, out, yeah. they're not. They're going to be stressed. If you're, and also my staff now. Like you know, if they see me stressed, they know that's a real problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, like I don't. Th- I mean, it's been very rare that that's kind of happened. To be honest. <laughs> yeah, lucky you got those sort of smiling eyes. That that and that actually is a big deal because it makes people feel. If you're dealing with forty five customers, your first yeah. trip. They're going to go, oh, he's a good kid. Look, let him go. He's just young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's good as long as he get my skiing in and, uh, you know, the snow, I'm all good. We're going to have to go to the break and we're gonna, I want to come back. I want to talk to you about how you took it from that very first trip of uh, skiing, snowboarding with your customers of 45 people to where it is today. I mean, there's been a lot of development, a lot of advancement from where you first started. I, I like to know what have been some of the challenges and how you got over them. I'm back here with Quentin and we're talking about his business and what we have established is that uh, 
to be frank with you, um, he sort of was fine by the seat of his pants when he took his first 45 customers, I don't know what you call them, customers or guests or clients, I don't know, um, to uh, Japan. What was the name of the joint you're talking to? Hakuba. Hakuba. Obviously, I don't know much about skiing, but uh, in Japan especially. Um, but you're talking about Hakuba. It all worked out okay, notwithstanding the fact you only got there the day before and to do your first reconnaissance of the joint. <laughs> yeah. If you look at today, where you are today, where your business is today, what do you put down your current success to? Is it just time and just getting things right over that 14-year period? Or is there anything in particular that you did to bootstrap your business to make it more effective and, and more a, a return customer style of business? What do you think it is? I mean, it's a number of things. Like one of those, I guess, is is the constant reinvestment. So everything, basically from when I started my business, like essentially up until now, everything that we've made has gone back into it in one way or another. So I kind of recognise that in Huckaba, like it's a, an amazing place. It's going to get more, more and more popular. And Japan had gone through a recession. It was still in recession um, and they'd had a bit of a skiing boom in the 80s and 90s. So you could pick up property for a, a relatively cheap price over there. So I recognised that we kind of needed to own the product and have the direct relationship with the customers uh, rather than just being the middleman where all we might be competing on is price. In other words, you weren't something more than a travel agent, so to speak. Yeah, we are. We are I'd say we're a lot more than a travel agent. Yeah, yeah. So it was kind of, you know, after my first or after that year taking 45 people, the next year we based ourselves in the resort and brought groups in every week. So you moved into the, the resort? That you into Huckaba. Right. Yeah. Huckaba being the, the being region. Being the area, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then the year following that, um, we I actually bought a lodge over there and it's we've got a few properties over there now. It's still my favourite one. It's called The Lab. The um, Lab. The Lab, yeah. Um, you bought a lot. I mean, how old were you? No, I was 24 at that time. Okay, so that's a big deal. How much you pay for a lodge over in Japan? Well, at that, and I mean, it's also relative to exchange rates. So at yeah. that time, the Aussie dollar was very strong. And at that time, it cost 500K. Right. Um, Aussie. And, Aussie. Yep. And that's, that's also something that my mother helped me with. She helped me by kind of mortgaging her property. Yeah, so I, I want to go back a sec. So, uh, at 24, your mum was, you're, you're lucky, your mum was able to borrow $500,000 against her house, I guess. Is that yeah, or less than that, but yeah. Okay. So I had I had some money. You had some money, yeah. Yep. So, and, but she put in a fair bit of money to help you get there. Yep. And you went and bought a, a lodge, well, you bought real estate in Japan. Yep. Um, That's a big deal. Like, uh, not many 24-year-olds would be thinking about buying a ski lodge. Is it, I mean, I don't know, what are we talking about here? An acre, half acre, what are we talking about? Uh, So the lodge has got 16 rooms. And I kind of turned it into a backpacker, so it would take about fifty people. So it's not a resort; it's a no. you just bought like a like a block of units or something. Like, yeah, it was actually yeah, it was actually an old um, property owned by like a milk and cheese company that used to bring their staff up and sponsor the Japanese ski jumpers. Right. So half a bar, half a million bucks yep. gets you um, 16, 15, 14 rooms, yep. um, and. Uh, like in the middle of the ski area, yeah. that's in Hakaba. In Hakaba, yeah, correct. And you borrowed half a mil. Yeah. Uh, well, you, sorry, you borrowed some and you put some in. Yep. So I mean, mum, mum again. Does mum get what? Do you, can I ask you what? What did you do with your mum? Just say, listen, mum, can you lend me, or whatever, whichever amount, whatever you amount, borrow three fifty out of her, whatever you got from her. Mum, uh, if this thing falls apart, 
I'll pay. I mean, what's yeah. the conversation look like? I mean, <laughs> yeah, pretty much that. Like she came over and she saw the area and, and whatnot and she's she also, she also owns half the property. Okay, um, so she got some of their property. Yep. And um, So like you're not doing it, you're being modest. So you you bought the property together, yep. mum, put, mum borrowed some money against yep. her house to put in her share. Correct. And she yep. probably borrowed a little bit more to help you out and you Absolutely. put in whatever spare money you had. So together you bought the joint. Correct. Okay, cool. So like because I'm thinking, shit, his mum's just sort of uh, stumped him for half a bar. Um, at twenty four, that's a big deal. Um, but she she probably saw the sense in the investment in the first place. Yeah, I think she did, and she also had like she's also had a lot of belief in in me and my kind of skills, and knew that I don't know knew that I wouldn't if it didn't work that I'd pay her back as well. Yeah, yeah. Go well, well, <laughs> parents have faith in their kids sometimes. Uh, so and but so do, does your mum then get? How does your mum get a return on that? Well, because sure. I mean, you've got people here yeah, listening yeah. to this, and they're they're saying, "Oh, hang on, maybe my parents could go and borrow some money against something that they own in order to help me with my business." Um, I mean, did it help the fact that it was real estate? You weren't like borrowing money just to put in as cash flow. You put it. Sure. You, she bought real estate. Which, what are the things that sort of enticed her to make this first investment with you? Well, I guess it was seeing the growth, like in that area, and seeing the potential that it had over there, and and trusting my instincts as well. So she'll. I mean, at the moment, I could sell that for probably one and a half. Right. So she'd triple her money if she if we sold it now. Right. I'm not so going she, to sell it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But and do you pay her interest or do you pay her rent or what? What happened? Yeah, I mean, I so I paid so the half or it was more than half, but the amount that she put in, um, I pay that loan off. Right. So she borrowed against her house. Yep. And then, like, I've made all the repayments on it. Right. Okay. So did you sit down and do that? Did you sort of say, okay, if I can get uh, 500 people here a season, it'll earn me blah, that allow me, mum, to pay and your mortgage payments to the bank for yep. the amount of money you raise, mum, are 3000 a month. Yeah. I can give you that 3000 a month. Did you do that, Do that? go through that process? Yeah, we did. Okay, good. We did. So you you did your work on this. Like it's not just, oh, hi, mum, give me some money, can I go and buy a property? Because that's what it said. Yep. A single mum is very responsible. You've got two other brothers and sisters. So the, exactly. And she's got to eat and they're all got to survive. So, yeah, okay, that makes more sense to me. But so you did the work. Yeah, we did the work. And, and um, you've been paying the loan off whoever lent yeah, the money paid, to you 14 years ago? 100%, yeah. yeah. Okay, so what did you learn from that? I mean, where are your stress points? You know, how was your cortisone in your bloodstream? I mean, what was going on? Cortisol, not cortisone, cortisol. I mean, I guess I, I guess like when you when you take on a commitment like that and, and now I've done it to a bigger extent with other, with other property and other events and whatnot that we've done, um, you set yourself a benchmark and you've got to, and like there's no option not to achieve those results. So I'm like, okay, this year, so that year when we went into buying the lab, we'd taken over 400 people. That was my second year. The first year I took 40. Um, and then I was like, well, I've got to kind of grow the business. So I've got to, you know, double or triple it again um, to pay back that, but then also keep growing the way that I wanted to grow. And so it's just... I don't know. If you say you've got to do something, like, can you put your head down? You can get it done. Yeah, but like, if if you're you're sixteen rooms in Hockaba, Hockaba, yeah, Hockaba, um, which is a ski resort, is only skiing there. Well, how many months of the year? Yeah, three months of the year. Three months of the year. Okay. Yeah. So the rest of the time, I don't know. People might want to go and have a bushwalk or something, but like, no, I, you know, it's not going to work. Yeah. Okay, close down. Okay, so you get three months. So you've got limited capacity. So you can't put um, 
thousand people in the sixteen, uh, fourteen rooms, sixteen rooms over a three month period. There's just yeah. it's constrained. It is. So yeah. you can't grow by, by by definition. You can't grow beyond where you can grow. There's a capacity. Yeah. So with that one property, there's a capacity issue. But um. So what did you do about that? But we uh and like still to this day, like I send a lot more customers to other properties other than our own ones. Right. So we book all the resorts in Hakuba and a lot of the other ski areas in Japan. And on that side, uh, something that's been really important is giving the customer the best option for them. So not saying, well, I've got, like back then, when especially when I was 24 or whatever, going, well, I've got this place called The Lab. It's a real, like, real fun kind of party vibe. Good if you're like 25 years old and want to come over, have a beer at night, go out snowboarding the next day. Um, I'll put a family in there with like three young kids. Uh, so we'd, and that's been important to us from the beginning is really looking after our customer experience and making sure the most important thing is, is that experience that they get when they're over there and that we're not compromising that by using one of our properties when there'd be a better alternative for them. And so that's, I guess on that capacity side, we've really opened it up now that there's about, there's probably about four or 5,000 beds in Huckaba. So in that one resort, that's where we're limited. Four or five thousand means actual four or five thousand room beds, or is there four or five thousand bed nights? What do you uh, mean? Like beds. Beds. Yeah. Right. So there's enough supply to grow and to continue to grow. Uh, and then Huckabee's also not the only resort we operate to. So we operate to all the main ski resorts in Japan. So there's still, I mean, there's still a lot of opportunity over there as far as that kind of growth goes. We're not limited by the supply of accommodation, right? So, so, so you you don't have uh, like you've got headroom um, in yeah. in terms of in terms of meeting the demand. Um, I want to talk to you in a minute about how you generate demand. Yeah. Um, but I want to ask you a question. You keep saying the word experience, and I think it's a, it's a perfect word um, in this podcast. If I asked you. What business is Liquid Snow in? I mean, what is your business? Our business is offering people an amazing, like, snow and cultural experience. Yeah, so it's experiential. It's it, and yeah. it's the very thing that your mum exposed you to. Yeah, it's when funny you're 15. that I'd never kind of looped it back, which is yeah. why I wanted to do that because yeah, and you're spot on. Your purpose, your business purpose. You, you know, everyone calls it your why, but you know, your why, if to use popular language. And I hate the word vernacular, but okay, it is vernacular. Your why, your purpose is to offer an experience and then to deliver the experience. Yeah. The experience of Japanese culture and the thrill of snow, yeah, snowboarding the, and skiing, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. The thrill. I mean, is it is is it about, I'm not a skier, right, or a snowboarder. Um, can I ask you this? Is it is it about thrills? I mean, what is it? Is it about adrenaline? What are we talking about here? When it comes to snowboarding and skiing, what, what do you think it is? I mean, what have you drilled down it to being? Yeah, I mean, it's like it's a combination of thrills, adrenaline, like nature, uh, being outside, It's and just a, just an activity. I mean, I can't – I've got a, a wife and a little boy and, and I, like I don't – I can't go and sit on a beach for a week, you know, like – and there's a lot of people similar to that. And you come over on a ski holiday, especially with kids – the kids learn a new experience, like you have fun on the mountain, you get back at the end of the day, they're buggered, they'll go to bed, have a couple of glasses of wine and and hit the sack. Like it's more of a, 
it's for, for me, it's a lot more complete than going and sitting on a beach and drinking pina coladas. Yeah, so, I mean, if I could just sort of drill down a little bit further into it, what is the reward centre in your brain rewarding you for? So, because, you know, like it, it is satisfying, so yeah. but that's, that's sort of chemically based. You know, parts of our brain, it could be the hippocampus, I don't know which part of the particular which drugs have been pushed into your brain, but what what is the reward center rewarding you for? Is it exercise reward? In other words, it's the the feeling we get after we exercise. Is it that, or is it the reward of seeing nature? In other words, openness and uh, being you know emotionally rewarded for what we see in nature, or is it uh, or is it the adrenaline reward that we get? You know, the rush. Yeah, so or I is think it all of them. I, th- I think for people on a on a trip, it's all three of those. For me personally, when I'm over in Japan and I spend the winters there each year. Actually, moving over there um, full time this year, pending the current situation. Uh, and uh, but for me personally, I, I try and meet as many of our clients as, as I can in the resort. And it's seeing them coming back from a day going, "That was the best like snow of my life. I've enjoyed this trip so much." And seeing that happiness on their face and that, and them, you know, really enjoying their holiday and and. What's better than that? So now you know what the purpose is because you're actually physically experiencing it. So in other words, that's the best way to do a survey um, and that's the best way to do your research about the experience, yeah. the, the, the purpose that you're, um, you're offering. How do you build that into your messaging? So when you're messaging, when you, so we talked about you can meet the demand. I did say I want to come back to saying how do you generate the demand. For sure. So how do you send the message of the experience that you're effectively providing into building demand? I mean, what, what platforms do you use and so how do you do it? I mean, we, we do a lot um, with video, especially on social media. Yep. And then also that's- So you use social media and platforms? Yeah, we do. Yeah. yeah. What are we, which ones are we talking about now? Uh, basically Facebook and Instagram. Yep. And So what, what's your Instagram handle, for example? At Liquid Snow Tours. At Liquid Snow Tours. Yep. Okay. And, um, and are we talking about narrative or are we talking about visuals or videos? Videos. Videos. So that's, I guess, to show, you know, you can show a lot more through a video than, than a picture or some text. Um, and that's what initially captures someone's attention. And then when they come to us, all my staff go and spend the winters in Japan each year. And they're all very passionate about skiing and snowboarding and the Alps over there and the culture and everything else. And so I guess it's multi-leveled. So like we can, initially we can draw someone in through that video or through some like some amazing images or whatever it is. And then when they're talking to one of my staff and they're talking to someone who lives that life, they spend their winters there, they know about the properties, they know about the, you know, the best restaurants to go to, like where, what to do at nighttime, day trips, all that side of it then the customer like feels it's a lot more enticing, I guess, than just reading it in a brochure or going on to a OTA and booking a hotel somewhere where you don't really know what you're going to get. That's just really important. I mean, because the people listening to this, we often hear about, and I often talk about, and we hear about it as well, um, the importance of understanding why you're doing something. In other words, what's the customer's real purpose of dealing with you? It's not your purpose. It's your purpose is to fulfill their purpose. And if their purpose is the experiences that you explained earlier on, your game then is to send that message. And you saying you use all the platforms, which makes sense. Um, video makes a lot of sense in terms of expressing the, the message. Um, but I, I think what's really important that you just you hit on is critical that anybody's listening to this 
that when it comes to messaging, it doesn't stop at the Instagram and all the pretty pictures and the videos. No. The messaging has got to come through at every single level. You said multi-leveled or multi-layered, yeah. I think you said, but I wouldn't want to put it another way. It's every level. Every part of your business must speak to this message. Yeah, and absolutely. So how do you get your staff, how do you recruit people and retain people within your business who get it? Like, uh, what do you do? Do you I have mean, PD days? I mean, what do you do? Yeah, I mean, it's like definitely finding the right staff is a challenge, I think, in every business. Um, but through, like, the snow industry is quite small and uh, and through personal connections and relationships and whatnot, we've got a lot of our staff. I, How many people I, are doing uh, that? Uh, so full-time at Liquid Snow Tours, there's 12. Yep. And then I've got a, another company, Huckabee Hotel Group, that's got 10 full-time staff. Right. And then in the winter in Japan, we've got about 150 staff. Are they Japanese or Australian? No, oh, they're a combination of Japanese and right. Australian. Yep. It's more the full-time staff at Liquid that that then come over to Japan and can also, we can offer that experience. So first we can offer the, show the videos, show the experience, show them what they're going to get. Second, they talk to, the, talk to a consultant who kind of lives that life and spends the winters over there so it can give them the first-hand knowledge that's going to be best for their kind of circumstances. And then when they come on their trip, quite often they'll they'll meet the person who booked their trip. They might even go out skiing with them and they'll they'll have that extra experience in the resort where we do some other services. So like we'll do guiding for them four days a week where we'll show them around four of the different ski resorts. We'll do like a welcome night at one of our bars and uh, and just try and build more of a personal relationship there. So, that, yeah, I guess so you can follow all the way through and then they finish that journey and they even if they're going to go somewhere else next year, they tell all their friends about it and that's how we've sort of grown over the last year, decade. What would you say to people who are they're not building the same sort of business as you but they're building businesses which have experiences involved in them? Um, in terms of, I mean, I guess it's universal how you understand the messaging um, but how? what would you say to them in terms of recruiting people and recruiting the right people more importantly, but educating your own people as to how to sell the message or how to transfer the message or how to convey the message. What would you say to them? Like it's a, not just find the right people but and, you know, you know the, your whole industry, but what are you doing with them to infect them with yeah. the, the learnings and the messaging that you know about? For sure. I how, mean, how do you do that? I mean, well, what would you say to everybody? Like I, I guess there's probably two sides to your question. And on the recruiting side – for me, I think it's it's a lot better to recruit someone based on their attitude rather than their skill set, because you can like you can always teach someone how to book a holiday or how to use a reservation system or how to book flights or whatever it is, but you can't change someone's attitude. Mm. And so finding somebody that gels within our company culture has that right attitude, whether that's through um, you know people that have worked for me seasonally in Japan, they come and work full time in the office after that or whether it's through interviews or whatnot or like other connections, that's one side on the recruiting side. And then to show them, to enable them to convey the that message of the snow and, and, to, and to convey that to a client that might be on the phone or via email or whatever it is, that's where immersing them in the environment over there and that, that's not a cheap exercise. Like we no, totally. sending all your staff to Japan for three months and accommodation and everything else, you know, that's an investment in itself. Uh, and so by doing that, 
allows them to explain that to people that are on the phone or want to, you know, coming through to book a holiday a lot better than you could by saying, oh, jump on the web and look at the Wikipedia page. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> so to sell the experience, they've got to have the experience themselves. They've got to have it. What you're saying. Absolutely. And Because to me, part of the success of your business, and we're running out of time here, but part of the success of your business is the fact that you have people can, that can actually uh, convey the message as a result of well, how you've just explained how because they've ex- actually experienced the same experience that they're trying to convey, but they can convey the messaging, and the messaging comes from you understanding the purpose of your business, which happens to be the purpose of your clients, your customers, and uh, that goes right back to um, your very early days about um, you know your mum exp- sort of exposing you to various experiences. Yeah, I mean, for I. Sure. I I, I, you know, I guess at this time of year we'd love to talk about coronavirus, but I'm not going to talk about it because, and how does it affect ski fields? And because to be honest with you, I don't really think that's a, any part of your story. I mean, it's it's another hiccup yep. that's going to occur in your, you know, in your journey, and and you'll deal with it, and it'll be what it'll be. You can't solve it. Um, yeah, exactly. You, it's going to it's going to hit you. It's going to hit you. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I hope it doesn't. Um, and if it, and those people who wanted to go this year, who won't go this year, well, they'll want to go more okay, next, year. next year. Exactly. S- totally. And you just have to learn how to scale your business back a little bit so it doesn't hurt too much in a financial sense. Yep. Um, I always give everyone an opportunity to ask me one question. So, because I've been asking all the questions. So what question you got for me? So Mark, I guess now, like over the last kind of 14 years, we've grown a lot and I've got myself involved with other like properties and whatnot. And, and I'm sort of at a point at 35 where I feel like I'm just at the start. I'm at the beginning and I've got all these opportunities now because I've made a bit of money and and I've got lots of ideas and lots of new things that I want to do. But trying to tie that back at the same time as having, you know, like a young boy and a wife and how do you manage to follow all your business goals and and um, and desires, I guess, but then manage manage that time-wise as well with your, with a kind of young family. Can I ask you, what did your mum do when she was raising you and she had to work and she had to raise your brother and your sister and you and um, without any assistance, really, like a partner in yeah. terms? What did your mum do in terms of sharing her time? How, how did she do it? I mean, she, you know, she did what she had to do. So she, well, yeah. There's my answer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's your goal? Fair enough. What's your yeah. goal? Where do you want to be in 10 years? Do you say... If I'm doing 4,000 beds a, a year now, I want to do 8,000 years. What is your number goal? Do you have a number For goal? Sure. Uh, uh, well, my goal, I guess, is more on the property side, so more developing. So we're looking at developing, partnering with some people to develop like some five-star hotels and whatnot and really taking that property side to another level. Okay, so I would say to you, Quentin, Nolan, I would say to you, work out where you want to be in five years and 10 years and in hard terms. Like yeah. I want to have 10 properties or four properties or a thousand beds or, and I want to fill up, you know, like what are your hard numbers? Five years, 10 years, right? Sure. Yeah. Then the next thing you do, your mum, you do what you have to do. You do what you have to do and get on with it. Just get on with it. Don't fucking think about it, right? Just get on with it. Explain to your wife, explain to your, 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 your child. And yeah. even though he, is it he or she? Uh, it's a little boy, yeah. A little boy. He might not understand. Keep bringing him through. Take him on the journey with you. Yeah. And do what you have to do. Do what your mum did. It's for worth sure. for you so far. And I'll bring him to Japan and show him that culture and give him those experiences. Mate, he's going to so, have he's going to have the right of his life. Yeah. No, most. I mean, all right, you can do nothing and you say, "Oh shit, I've got to put more time. I've got to go to kindergarten with." And like he'll be brought up like every other kid, yeah, and he won't yeah, have yeah. the rich experiences of what he's about to be exposed to. I reckon it's probably having those rich experiences because, to be honest with you, 
it stood by you, didn't it? Oh, I did. Having those rich experiences. You can give even more rich experiences than the mum was able to give to you. For sure. That's your obligation yep. to pay it forward. And just Number managing one, it, yeah. Manage it 100%. Backfill, move forward. Yep. Make a mistake, oh, shit, hang on, a bit of backfill. Yeah, yeah, There's yeah. There's no perfect way to do these things because if you sit and try and perfect things, which you didn't do when you were 22, when you are 22 you didn't sit and say, how am I going to do this fucking perfectly? You just went and did it, right? Yep. You do the same thing. If that okay. works, fucking keep it going. Perfect. i got one, one last question for you, Quentin. Yep. That young lady who you met when you were, that young lady who was the exchange student, have you ever gone back to say hello to her? Uh, you know, we lost contact, unfortunately. But uh, following this podcast, I might try and rekindle something. Yeah, maybe. Find out, who, just, find out just, where she is. Just to say hello. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a, Wouldn't it be funny if she was point. living in the same resort, <laughs> same area? <laughs> she could come and work for us. Totally. But well, what's <laughs> interesting would be just like, it's just that chance meeting that actually to some extent forged a pathway for you. It just opened that little door. Yeah, yeah. Just put it a little bit ajar and uh, uh, and you just stormed straight through it. Just went straight in, yeah. No, that's that's a great idea, Mark. Great to meet you, Quinn. Nice to meet All you too. You. Thank you very much. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.